Take your Bible, and uh, if you have, I'm sure somewhere in your house you have a, uh, a real Bible, meaning not a, an electronic Bible, but take, find a real Bible if you have one. Get a pen, a little piece of paper, um, and we're going to look at Joshua 5. And we're in the middle of a series or really more of a collection of talks that we've called Defining Moments. And um, sort of on the heels of where probably we as the church in America, maybe even we as the country of America find ourselves um, in a defining moment, we are taking a pause to look back at the nation of Israel, specifically in the Old Testament, and look at where um, the Israelites were brought by God to a spot uh, where they had to choose one way or another, and, and the way that they chose defined them for years to come. So that's really what we're looking at. Um, I'm going to read Joshua 5, the latter part of it. I'm going to start in verse 13, um, but we're going to talk a little bit about the first part of 5 and then even some later on in 6. So in your own study, maybe read 5 and 6. But I'm in Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Um, maybe a thing or two to, to keep in mind. Uh, Moses has just died. Um, so uh, the people uh, of the Israelite people were led out of bondage in slavery in Egypt by Moses and they went into the wilderness. It should have been a two-week trip by the mountain of God where they would have gotten the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Following that, they would have gone on and they would have gone to the, the really the borderlands or the, the um, Jordan River, which marked the land of Canaan. They would have crossed that Jordan River and they would have entered into the Promised Land. It should have taken about two weeks. Instead, uh, the people of God hardened their hearts. Um, they sinned against God. They rejected God. Um, and God therefore said, because of your great sin, you can stay in the wilderness for 40 years. You can wander around. Once that entire generation that's come out of um, slavery in Egypt has passed away, your kids are going to come back to that river, the Jordan River, and they will cross over and go into the promised land. So literally, uh, Moses has just died. This entire generation has now passed away. Leadership has been passed to this young uh, stonecutter named Joshua, who was Moses's aide. And um, he has literally just gone with this Israelite people up to the Jordan River. And the way God commanded him to cross this river, I don't know if you ever forded a river. I've forded a number of rivers backpacking and out climbing and whatever in the, in the wilderness, but it's a, it's a dangerous business fording a river. Um, but they came to the river and uh, God commanded that the Ark of the Covenant go first. And it literally says that as um, the priests that were holding the Ark set their foot into the water, the water stood up in a heap. So you have this Jordan River, which would have been swollen greatly at this time of year. And it literally stands up in a heap and they cross over in dry land. And then it, after they cross over, the river begins to flow again. So after they have crossed over, there's, there's two things that God calls them to do. We're going to talk about that later, but I'm going to now pick up reading in verse 13. So now remember, Joshua is kind of a rookie leader. Um, he, he is not even probably fully convinced um, that God's gracious hand and anointing rests on his life. He's a little scared, um, and, and that's where we pick up, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, the first city they came to in the promised land, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the armies of the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D in my NIV translation, which means Yahweh, that's the name of God in the Old 
Testament and in the New, Yahweh. Uh, but I have, uh, as commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua then fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Chapter six, verse one, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men, its armies. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city, not once, but seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. And when you hear the sound of the blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go, will go up, everyone straight in. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you allow um, our hearts to be moved by the power of your word today? Father, wherever we are, it's so easy as we're turning on devices and TVs and computers and phones to, to be so distracted by a good many things. And Father, I pray that as we, in our time today, that you would allow us not to hear me, but that in fact my voice would grow strangely dim and that you, Holy Spirit, would get a, a hold of our hearts because I think this message is vital to the health of our church and our churches, even where we are as a country. Holy Spirit, speak to us, your people today. In your name we pray, amen. In um, 2018 and again in 2019, Abby, my wife and I took our kids um, to California. And uh, on the trips, we actually got Nalgene water bottles. And what we did is every national park we visited or every cool place we visited, we got a sticker. And so everybody built a sticker collection on a couple of water bottles. Um, Abby and Eve even made one for Amelia. Um, Ezra wasn't born at that time, but here was one from our, I think it was our first trip, but it was Grand Canyon, Big Sur, Yosemite. Um, and then I got a big sticker here from San Diego. And it was interesting because I was reflecting on this whole message and I'm thinking of, of an army, an Israelite army crossing over a river and being in a, a new land and they're going to attack this um, city. They're supposed to, by the order of God, they're supposed to go and take over the city of Jericho. And uh, what we did while we were in San Diego on this particular trip is we stayed with a friend of mine um, who was a Navy SEAL. And it was really fascinating because he had a big house and we stayed there and we're at the beach and we're doing all sorts of cool stuff in San Diego. But he took us down and he showed us um, where Hell Week happened and Coronado, the sea base, and where all of his training and everything sort of goes down. And I was literally working on this message and I almost picked up the telephone just to give him a call to see how he would respond if uh, he was asked by his commanding officers when he's sent on a mission to go in with a trumpet instead of a sword. I want you to think just a second here because what is happening, we, we read these things um, sort of on paper and we tend to distance ourselves from maybe what's going on emotionally inside the people as they face whatever they're facing. So just think about this for just a minute. Joshua is a, is a rookie leader, probably full of insecurity. He's gone into this um, new 
uh, country, this place that God's called him to go. And instead of going right in and probably feeding his ego, I love Meg's quote, he actually, God actually says, no, no, don't go in and attack. Go in and walk around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, don't just walk around once, but walk around seven times and have everybody blow these ram's horns and yell. And God, who is going to fight for you, will actually win the battle. The, the walls will come tumbling down and you can just walk right in. How embarrassing, right? I'm sure my Navy SEAL friend would go, there's no way that we would do that. It, it is literally embarrassing. It's like, it's almost humiliating to think of a warrior uh, putting down his weapons and fighting with a trumpet. It's, it's like, it is absolutely mind boggling. When you think of military strategy, it's insanity. It's absolute silliness. So I want you to set that sort of aside. Um, and then I want to, I want to set the table before we eat, uh, you set the table, right? And I, I want to do that this morning with a couple of background points that are happening in chapter five, right before this interaction between Joshua and this person, because that's what I want to focus on this morning. But there's some things you need to understand. The first thing is, um, as soon as they've gone into the land, God commands that, uh, Joshua pause and circumcise everyone. Now, Joshua has literally taken an entire army and, and maybe upwards of a million people into this new land and they're literally camping out and they're ready to go and start attacking different places and cities and taking over the promised land and he circumcises every man so they can't even walk. Talk about military uh, insanity. Talk about, I mean, they are like sitting ducks and yet God commands them to do this. It's interesting because Joshua does this at a place called Gilgal, and Gilgal actually means um, circle um, or, or roll. And what's fascinating is they're literally circling back to where they were 40 years earlier when the Israelites disobeyed. God is literally, if you will, um, rolling away their shame. He is literally rolling away the reproach of having been in bondage and slavery for 40 years. He's rolling away the sin of having been lost in the desert for 40 years. He's, he's rolling and, and, and circling them back to the place where all of their parents originally sinned. And now he's calling them to take courage and to go into the land that he's given them. How many times and how many people could we talk about whose sin has stopped them from entering and becoming and doing all that God has called and commissioned them to do? It's probably one of my even greatest fears as a pastor, as a leader. But here we are at, at Gilgal and God has brought them back to the same place. They are getting ready to take over the promised land. And God first says, no, no, we're going to renew circumcision, which is a, it's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. And you'd go, why circumcision? That's gross and it's weird. It is. It's, it's very strange. But it's a covenant relationship. It's an Old Testament symbol of a New Testament reality, which is a covenant um, with, of relationship between us and Christ Jesus. It, it, you probably ought to think of it like this. Um, I wear a wedding ring. Now, that little wedding ring um, doesn't make me married. It, it's a symbol of a covenant relationship or a promised relationship that I have with my wife, Abby. And I wear it to remind me of what's in my heart. Now, I've taken my ring off. That doesn't make me not married, right? I'm still married. I've made the covenant with Abby. 
the ring is just a, a symbol. And like that, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a symbol of a covenant relationship with God. And in the New Testament, what we see again and again through Jesus and then Paul and the New Testament writers, but we see this call to actually circumcise your hearts. This is so important because right now, um, we as Saltbox and even broader than that, the American church, you're either going to be at a place where you're going to be real tempted to sling mud, um, to get angry, to get frustrated, to take your, your frustration out on someone, or you're going to let the Lord use this time to circumcise your heart. You're going to let him use this time and let the Holy Spirit use this time to cause you to dig in deeper into relationship and an intimate walk with him. The second thing that after they were circumcised and then they waited till they were healed, then they actually celebrated Passover. And I want you to just remind you really simply what Passover was. Passover literally happened as the Israelites were leaving Egypt. So what, what, they, what they were required to do is there's an angel of death who is coming um, because of Pharaoh's hard heart. And that angel of death is bringing death to the firstborn in all of Egypt. And literally what happens is God commands Moses to take, tell the people to kill a lamb and to take the blood on hyssop branches, dip, it, um, dip the hyssop branches into the blood and put it on the doorpost over and around each door. And then they leave. And so the celebration of Passover is literally a looking back to God bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt. But it's also very crucial because it's looking forward to King Jesus being crucified at Golgotha. So God literally calls them to celebrate uh, Passover um, after they've healed from this circumcision. And what's fascinating is Passover uh, at this point, again, look back, look, is looking back to the bond of, of Egypt and looking forward to the coming of King Jesus. After they've renewed this covenant relationship with God, then they've celebrated Passover, literally the, almost a prescription that God is showing here is he cannot and will not use them powerfully until right relationship with him is restored. Make note of that church. He cannot use us as people powerfully until right relationship with him is restored. And I believe with everything in me that God is providing an opportunity for the American church to experience circumcision of heart to experience the renewal of a, a covenant relationship with King Jesus. And then the last thing that I want to point out here is, is the people have literally transitioned from eating manna. So as they're in the desert, um, God provides them with manna every day. And manna is a funny a Hebrew word that literally means, what is it? And it's like, they didn't even know what the stuff they were eating was, but they've, they've crossed the Jordan river and the manna stops. And it literally says they eat the fruit of the land for the first time. That's, that's literally what is sort of transpiring. And not only that, the manna stops, they're eating the fruit of the land and they have this swollen river behind them. And here's what I, I think. I think the people were probably so vulnerable and so afraid that the temptation was going to be to run back, but they couldn't because the river was swollen and closed. And they were probably tempted to go back to eating manna instead of the fruit of the land. And, and instead, they have to eat the fruit of the land and stay. It's like there's no way forward. It's almost like the boats have been burnt. The manna has stopped. 
Now, the table's kind of set here, so now I think this is the most important part even of my message this morning, is I, I wanna take a look at Joshua and this interaction with this, um, literally what, what the word says is um, this, this person, um, this person, this man with a drawn sword in his hand. So the first thing that I wanna talk about here is Joshua's down near Jericho. Now, this is, this is Michael, this is my theory, but I think Joshua was anxious. I think Joshua had never really been at the helm of a fight all by himself. And I think he snuck over to Jericho and I think he's like spying out the land and he's going, can we do it? Can we do it? And I think in some ways, um, Joshua's probably sense of either over-responsibility or pride was sort of rising up and he was going, um, am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Is our army good enough? Can we take Jericho? Can we destroy this city? Can we um, do this? Can I do it? And so literally this man walks in, standing in front of him, verse 13, a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua goes up and asks him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now listen to this, guys, this is so um, vital. Get this, get this. Joshua's question betrays some arrogance and presumption in his own heart. This is my battle. These are my people. This is my plan. This is my responsibility. I don't want to fail. I think he's freaking out. He's almost probably having a panic attack and he sees this person with a drawn sword and there's almost assuredly that he would have known this was an angelic or a supernatural being. And instead he looks at this person and goes, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now, the American church even our church, our people, but the American church in general spends a lot of time asking, is God for this or is God for that? Is God for this party? Is God for that party? Is God for our country? Is God for this person? What I want you to actually see is the question itself demonstrates and reveals Joshua's um, arrogance and his presumption. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? My second point is the Lord's answer. The Lord literally says, neither. Now, let's just pause here for just a second. This is the commander of the Lord's army. It's spelled L-O-R-D, capitalized in my NIV Bible, which means it's Yahweh. So most likely this is a pre-incarnate, which just means before Jesus put skin on and walked around. This is probably Jesus before he came to earth. So Jesus is literally standing there um, before uh, Joshua and Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And I love the Lord's answer because he goes, neither, neither. And I'd ask you, whose fight is it anyway? What are you facing? What are we facing? Whose fight are you in? God said to him, neither. This is a classic sort of American um, pitfall that I think we fall into because we've, we've sort of lost this, um, almost we've lost our fear of God. We've lost our sense of awe about who God is. We've, we've lost our sense of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. And it's almost like we've tried to shrink God down and put him behind our um, sort of pet ideas or ideals or the group that we wanna support or who we wanna believe in or who we wanna back. And I would actually look into the camera and say to you, God will not back a human movement. God will not back 
a person. Joshua literally is standing here going, are you for us or against us? And the Lord Jesus himself goes, neither. And then what's Joshua's response? My third point. Joshua hits the ground face down. That's the right response. He falls down in reverence. He falls down in humility. He falls down in worship. He falls down in surrender. He literally falls down in dependence, which is the posture, I think, of the day. I am actually crying out to God that we would see Christians who would exemplify humility and love and grace and a heart posture both before God and one another that exudes that type of face down humility. See, this is Yahweh's battle. This is Yahweh's victory. This is God's army. These are God's people. And worship, which we just did with Stacy, literally wins the day. One of the things that I'm committed to as a pastor is that whatever we do as Saltbox, it would be undergirded by a worship movement. I've been a part of churches and watched churches tear themselves apart because they argue over worship style. I've watched churches tear themselves apart because they argue over chair style or building style or where we meet or how we dress. And I think what God would actually say to all of it is neither. Neither. Fall on your face. You know, sometimes I love to raise my hands in worship and I do that because it's a posture of utter surrender and humility. When you walk out, if you're in trouble with someone and you're surrendering, you literally walk out with your hands up. So when I get before King Jesus, there's a worship posture that's hands up, it's hearts up, it's face down, it's a posture of great humility. See, obedience to God will always minimize us, even make us seem less, but it always makes him seem greater. I think walking around Jericho actually minimized Joshua, but it maximized King Jesus. And then my fourth point here is the revelation. The revelation. And this is what it says in verses 15. The commander of the Lord's army, probably Jesus, says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. The Lord literally told Joshua to take off his sandals. Because the place where he is standing is holy. Listen to me, church. We've lost the reverential fear of a holy God. We've lost the awe of a creator God who put us in place and we've tried to shrink him down and put him behind one movement or one human idea or another and he will say, I will have none of it. I am not behind any of it. The requirement is that you surrender all to me. The requirement is absolute, total, and utter dependence upon him. Face down, worship and humility. Take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Holy in Hebrew is kadash. Holy in Greek is hagios. Both 
People define this a lot of different ways. Both mean different, different, set apart. If you wanna follow Jesus, you will be different. And I wanna ask you this, how rhetorically, think with me, what made that patch of ground that they were standing on that day become holy? What made it holy? The presence of Yahweh, the presence of King Jesus is what made it holy. Now, go to the New Testament and you're thinking, when we come to Christ and we surrender our hearts to Jesus, who then comes and lives inside of us? Jesus, Yahweh. When he comes and takes up residence inside of us, what do we become? Holy, different, set apart. That same holiness where the Lord Jesus was standing with some sword in his hand, it's the same imagery you get in the book of Revelation. And Joshua is literally going, are you for us or against us? And he goes, neither, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. That same holiness, that same revelation of who God is, our great Lord and King, the creator God, is the one who then comes and takes up residence inside of us. And when he takes up residence inside of us, we as his people become holy. 1 Peter 2.9 literally says, you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood. See, what's amazing about the gospel of Christ Jesus is we become holy as we surrender our lives to him. Now, think about it like this with me. God's promise to Joshua was Jericho was his, but he had to go and lay claim to it, didn't he? He had to obey and go march around the city. God made a promise to the people that the promised land was theirs, but they still had to go to the Jordan River and they had to put their feet in it and watch it stand up in a heap. God's promise was literally that, that it was theirs, but they had to go lay claim to it. I, I like to think of holiness kind of like that. Holiness, the holiness of God is Michael's in Jesus. It's yours in Jesus, but you gotta get up every day and lay claim to what is rightfully yours. Now, I've talked to a number of you and I'm recognizing that we at Saltbox are in a defining moment. There's people anxious that we're not gathering. There's people that are grateful that we're not gathering. There's people anxious because we don't know what building we're going to go to. There's people anxious that we might even get divided or break apart. I would actually suggest to you this morning that that's how Joshua and the people that he was leading felt when they stood at the banks of the Jordan River. I think that's how they felt again when they walked around the city of Jericho, anxious, not sure what was going to happen. And I would say to you, we as a church, not just Saltbox, but the American church, probably the church of Christ Jesus around the globe is standing on the precipice of holy opportunity. Welcome to the defining moments of our time. Perhaps now we are being circumcised in heart Perhaps now we're celebrating Passover, which the new Passover is communion. We're learning to embrace the freedom and assimilate God's forgiveness and love and grace into our own lives. Perhaps now we're in obedience to God. Perhaps now he can move because Michael is out of the way or even the elders are out of the way or even the people are out of the way. See, if you wanna achieve God's purpose, you must do it God's way. 
It's easy to hold back on obedience. It's easy to grieve the spirit. I believe with everything in me that we as a church, I love, let me say this as your pastor, I love where we are. Because it's almost like we're standing at the banks of the Jordan and it's like, Lord, if you don't make this stand up in a heap, it ain't gonna happen. And the Lord has promised something, not just a salt box, but to churches across this great nation and around the world. And we are at the precipice of holy opportunity. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced that he has called the church to circumcise their hearts, to celebrate and appropriate the life and blood and death of Christ Jesus, to literally walk into and out of arrogance and presumption, to to embrace that sort of face down humility, to get rid of this idea that God will ever be necessarily behind something we're doing or not doing. No, 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 it's neither. He is holy, he is above, he is God. And it's my prayer that we would recover the revelation of a holy God in this day. Stacy, would you come and play Worship, lead us in worship. I can't imagine how these people felt walking in a parade around Jericho. Church, we're at the precipice of holy opportunity. We are in our own defining moment. And I wanna call you as God is calling me to humble yourself before him to find yourself in worship. To even get face down and contrite before him. To embrace the call that he's got on our lives and on our church and even on our city.